1: Hey everybody, welcome to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee, and joining me as always in Southampton, England is Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, we have an incredible show today. Yeah, we do. It's
0: uh it's a great interview, so I think we should just jump right into it.
1: Yeah, we are we are joined by Oyuna Ronchemeg. She is a member of team USA's wheelchair curling team and she has really a remarkable story she's originally from Mongolia and came to the u s and we will let her let her tell her story but really just a, an incredible person who is uh, very driven and and very much goes after her goals huh
0: yeah absolutely it's a fantastic fantastic story uh, about everything about curling about Paralympics, about going for gold, but also just about, I guess, overcoming big challenges in your life too.
1: And we will we will let her tell her story mostly in her own words. Really, we just tried to get out of the way and let a remarkable person tell a remarkable story. So let's get into our interview with Oyuna Oranchimeg. Okay, today we are joined by Oyuna Aranchemeg from the United States Wheelchair Curling Team. Oyuna, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me and thank you for your interest in uh, my story.
1: Well, yeah, and it's, it's, it's a remarkable one and we'll get into it. But first, just kind of want to start and get some background. So just can you let us know, you know where you're from and, and what it was like growing up there?
2: I was born and raised in Mongolia, and uh, anybody who don't know uh, where Mongolia is, it's a country located right between China and Russia. And I have two sisters and two brothers, and I am the second oldest among my siblings. And uh, Mongolia was a, a socialist country when I was growing up, and it transitioned into democracy in the early 90s. Like most of the former socialist countries in Eastern Europe, after uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union. My parents were uh, divorced when I was six, and my mom raised us as a single mother. And as you would imagine, uh, the life wasn't all rainbows and sunshines (laughs) being raised by a single mom, but five of us all grown up and to be decent human beings. So kudos to my mom.
1: So how did you originally come to the United States?
2: In the summer of 2000, I got an opportunity to obtain a visitor visa uh, to travel to the U.S. And I came to Minnesota because uh, I had a friend here, friend of mine here, living at that time. So it was, of course, a very exciting adventure for me to get to see America for the first time. And uh, in a, growing up in a socialist country like Mongolia, uh, we've been taught that America was this evil capitalist nation mm. who wants to destroy the Soviet Union and all these <laughs> good socialist countries. So it was uh, quite an experience. And then I really enjoyed my first uh, time landing in America and just kind of being in awe of everything, how big everything were, and people were so big, cars were so big, and there's so much space and things like that. So. It was a big good experience.
1: And while you were visiting the U.S. for the first time back in 2000, your, your life was changed forever. And if, if you're comfortable doing so, would you share with us the details of the accident you were in while you were visiting here?
2: Unfortunately, my excitement and travel adventure ended uh, just after a week I landed in the U.S. I was in a car accident uh, just after a week. Uh, I came to United States. The day of the accident, I went to see a movie with uh, one of the acquaintances. Uh, he was a Mongolian guy. To see a movie, and it turned out that he didn't really know the road so well. And then uh, maybe he wasn't an experienced driver. So it took us a long time to find a movie theater and then you know like navigating all this freeways and whatnot so i think it was kind of challenging for him and then once we finally found the movie theater and they watched the movie and on the way back so he was still struggling to find way back and then uh, he saw the exit and then he took a really sharp turn into an exit uh, so i think uh, the report says like he was uh, going 70 miles an hour and then took a sharp turn into this uh, roundabout exits where you have to really reduce your speed down. So in the car lost the control and then uh, it rolled over and I was thrown out, out of the car. And so that's how I got the spinal cord injury. So that's how, how, the accident happened.
1: And when, when were you first aware of the, the extent of your injuries from the accident?
2: I mean, the accident happened so fast. I mean, I didn't—I lost consciousness, of course, uh, as soon as the car uh, turned or rolled. But then, once I woke up and I—I I see myself uh, uh, kind of lying uh, face down on the grass, and I had a really bad pain, uh, excruciating pain in my back, and it felt like somebody actually stabbed me with, with a knife or something through my spine so the pain was so intense and i still kind of try to figure out what happened but then kind of like i was in and out of consciousness and then at one point uh probably the paramedics came and then kind of uh, tapping my face and telling that stay with me and then asking these questions and things like that and i'm a- answering some of them but then just kind of going back into uh, unconsciousness so anyway and then turned out I uh, woke up two days after uh, the accident uh, and then th- I was taken to a hospital here, Regent's Hospital here in St. Paul. The accident actually happened here in Minnesota, not too far from where I live now. Oh, wow. uh, so I woke up uh, with all these tubes through uh, my nose and vein and everywhere. So I did kind of realize that I was in an accident and I'm in the hospital. But I had no idea what kind of injury or, yeah, illness or whatever I had. So I, uh, I just uh, feel like there's a lot of pain in my back. I didn't feel my legs right away, but it felt like my legs were kind of wrapped in really tight things. I mean, you know, like I thought maybe it's a, uh, a casket around my legs. Maybe somebody wrapped it really tight. Maybe my legs were broken. I had no idea. Throughout the day, yeah, I'm like trying to figure out what I can move, what I cannot, and then so I can't move, move my legs. And then I thought it's maybe just broken, and uh, because it's I don't know wrapped in something, and then it, it's preventing me to move. I I did not. I just had no idea that I had a spinal cord injury. Mm-hmm. In fact, I didn't know what spinal cord injury was, so I didn't know you can actually hurt your spine like that and get paralyzed. So oh, wow. I had very little knowledge about the spinal cord injury. So the, all I could think of was, uh, yeah, maybe my legs are broken because I couldn't move my arm. <laughs> it's kind of funny when you don't know the extent of your injury, you worry about your appearance. So I felt like there is a, I mean, stitches on my face, like uh, around my uh, forehead. So I thought, oh, my God, my face is disfigured. (laughs) So that's the first thing I thought worried about, not like being paralyzed because that haven't registered yet. So I I was so worried that my face was disfigured. So anyway, and then slowly, like uh, all these doctors are start talking to me and then asking questions and telling me what happened. And and my friend uh, who I actually was visiting at the time, yeah, she was there as well. And then uh, uh, trying to explain what happened and where I am and why I'm here and all that stuff. Hmm. So, yeah, it was uh, uh, shocking, of course. Uh, and then uh, just I didn't actually know what to make of the whole situation because it's just happened so sudden. And uh, and also uh, not being able to understand English so well at that time. Also, a kind of um, I encountered with some problems because all these doctors and nurses and things are asking questions, talking about things, and they try to explain what happened. And I don't actually understand some of the terminologies they were using. And that's why I had no clue what actually happened to me.
1: And I mean, I can't imagine how scary that would be. And then compounded by the fact that everyone you love is on the other side of the world.
2: Yes, I know. So since it happened when I was just here visiting, it's not like I was I moved here a long time or anything like that. It was pretty shocking to me, and not having any of my loved ones or my family or my mom here with me was really tough. On top of all the pain and new experiences I have been having, because once you have a spinal cord injury, there is you got a whole new body. You have no control over your body. So that's very challenging. And I hadn't, I didn't know anything. Okay, how am I going to pay these bills? And then I, I, after a few days, I realized, I mean, those hospital stays and things cost so much. And I would start worrying about, worrying about the whole thing. And, oh my God, who's going to pay for this? How am I going to live like this? And it was, I mean, really, really hard time for me.
0: Yeah, I can't, you know, I can't imagine um, you've been in the, a new country for a week. You, you probably didn't know many people.
2: Not, not really.
0: Obviously, after an accident like this, it's really important to have a support system. So so what did you do or how did you get help? And could you tell us a bit about the people who, who maybe worked with you uh, during your therapy and recovery period?
2: Yeah, as you can understand, once I start learning uh, the extent of my injury and that I won't be, I've never been able to walk again and to, I mean, like go to bathroom like a normal person. So it was really depressing. And, uh, and then I didn't know, okay, what am I, am, am I going to do now with my life? I mean, uh, when I go back to Mongolia, so I'm just going to be a burden on the, my family. So I can't raise my kid and this just—I felt like that's the end of the life, and for me, and couldn't really uh, figure out what I need to do, and so I, I was pretty depressed. Of course, I think a lot of people probably do, do get into that situation when this kind of thing happens. I thought maybe if I if I never gonna be able to walk again, be like a normal person, so what's the point of living? And I'm, all I'm gonna be is just i don't know laying on a bed and being a burden and somebody has to wipe my butt and i don't know just uh, d- i'm just going to be useless <laughs> to anybody and uh, so i even contemplated the I mean, suicide and all that stuff so i did uh, uh, at some point start collecting uh, those pain pills i thought maybe if i just uh, take it all at once and then will never wake up again so uh, just to kind of keep myself out of this misery so and then uh, the hospital staff I mean the hospitals have all the social workers financial workers and pastors and whatnot so they of course see how I'm feeling and then they try to help out of course so they're trying to connect me with people who might be able to help me or talk to me, and so I won't be too depressed about my situation. The hospital social worker one day said, well, there are people who are in your situation who had the same injury as you are, and they live in pretty normal life. Maybe uh, you want to talk to them and see how they uh, uh, get through this and stuff like that. And so I wasn't really enthusiastic about it. I just, okay of course there are doctors and nurses and people uh, saying that well you're going to be okay you would be able to i mean uh, just to use a wheelchair and have a normal somewhat normal life and, and i i just don't believe them like okay what do you know you're not i mean in my condition so how dare you tell me that things going to be okay and then uh, one day yeah the, this lady in the wheelchair uh, just rolled into my hospital room and introduced herself. Her name was Tammy and she was very um, happy person. And then she almost, I felt like I knew I've known her long time. I don't know, she was so friendly and uh, and talked to me. And then I I was kind of like, wow, uh, she seems, I mean, pretty happy being in a wheelchair. <laughs> so I didn't know, cause I, I thought like everybody who was in a wheelchair gonna be so depressed like I am at that point. But she was totally normal and uh, so uh, enthusiastic and I guess so happy to uh, be talking to me. And, uh, and then I, I, mean, I got to talk to her and then she told her story, how she got injured and how long she's been injured and and uh, and then of course i started bombarding her with questions okay how do you do this how do you do that so it's mostly uh basically all the stuff that's related to being uh, paralyzed so like uh, all the bathroom routines okay how do you pee how do you poop so that's kind of the mm. que- question intimate questions that i asked her and then she shared all her all her experiences and uh, gave me lots of tips and stuff And then she said, I mean, she uh, had to like look around to park and I'm like, oh, you also drive? And they say, yeah. So I'm like, how? And I'm like, how is that even possible? You driving? And so I had no idea since I mean, I in Mongolia, I mean, I've uh, never seen anybody in a wheelchair. I'm just not familiar with uh, uh, anybody with spinal cord injury and had no idea people actually can have somewhat normal life. So. And it was, of course, cultural shock to me. So if I were grown up here in the U.S., I probably would have known that. that, I mean, the people still can have a a somewhat normal life. Since I grew up in Mongolia, in the environment, there's accessibility is actually zero. I mean, you just yeah don't see people in the wheelchairs uh, out and about. So it was very uh, interesting to me to learn that she is actually living pre-normal life. And then until uh, I met Tammy, yeah, I just just couldn't picture myself actually having a, any sort of normal life. So she's basically kind of opened the eyes uh, for me and uh, kind of led me. Okay, this is gonna be okay. You will, uh, you would be able to do things that I'm doing now. And so, uh, just hearing those things, learning the experiences of somebody who has been through. It helped me a lot to kind of get over that. Otherwise, I all I wanted was like, okay, I don't, I don't want this life, and I'm gonna die. <laughs> so that's all I was. I kept thinking, but uh, she gave me a, a hope, and that there is actually life after you got injured. And also, there are a lot of other people, not just only her. And the hospital also arranged the visit with the. Some Buddhist center because they ask, okay, do you want to meet uh, with uh, I don't know some religious uh, uh, people? I mean to help you, kind of I don't know, emotionally help you with what you're dealing with right now. To ask you what what religion are you? And then I said, I'm yeah, Tibetan Buddhist or Buddhist. And then uh, they did uh, invite uh, connect uh, me with the group who's a Zen Buddhists in in the Twin Cities area. So yeah. And I, I thought, uh, for whatever reason, I imagined that the oh, there will be this uh, Buddhist uh, will be coming to visit you today. And then I thought, and I imagined it would be this uh, Tibetan monks with their ropes and things will be coming in. But then it was completely different. It was this uh, white woman, <laughs> the skinny huh. white woman, came in <laughs> I'm like, oh, I didn't know. It. Yeah, that would be the case. So it was quite an interesting experience. You know, I mean. I had a cultural shock mm-hmm. in, on top of my uh, physical uh, trauma. So, And uh, so she uh, connected me. I mean, through her, I actually was able to connect with so many people who helped me along the way. Like uh, she helped me to uh, find uh, a personal injury lawyer, an immigration attorney, mm-hmm. and uh, some other people you know, who was trying to find an employment for me, etc.
1: Tammy sounds... Pretty remarkable. Have you kept in touch with her throughout since you've been living in Minnesota?
2: We stayed in touch for a few years after I met her. And she even like uh, invited me to her home. Uh, and uh, I visited her house. And then she showed me around. Uh, like She actually has a horse uh, uh, that she was training to ride, even though she was uh, injured riding a horse. So anyway... And then she was an occupational therapist occupational therapist uh, in school so uh she had two kids and then uh, of course and she's like oh you need to start learning to drive and so I, I, didn't have a driver's license. I didn't drive until, uh, after my injury. Uh, so I, first time I tried driving her car, it was, of course, I scared her a lot, <laughs> because <laughs> it was not the best <laughs> experience because that's first time I'm actually driving a car and then with a hand control. And so good thing she lived in, uh, kind of countryside. So, out of, uh, not in a place where there's a whole lot of traffic. So anyway. And then she does like a hand cycling, and she did uh, uh, she did actually play basketball, and uh, uh, has been in Paralympics, I believe. Oh, wow. She said uh, is of uh, the is a team USA in a, I don't know what year was it, but anyway, so she also connected me with the, this uh, place called Courage Center, uh, which is a big rehab uh, center in Minnesota. I think a lot of people probably know about that. And uh, so they have a lot of sports programs. And then she connected me over oh, uh, you, you can probably play uh, basketball. And once your arm is recovered, you can play basketball in and, and I did actually went uh, to uh, uh, play basketball with the, the they called the rolling Timberwolves. Okay. <laughs> and then, yeah, the Minnesota the wheelchair, cur- uh, not in yeah, basketball team. So I played with them for one season. Oh, wow even went to nationals once.
1: Has she kind of inspired you to, you know, pay it forward? Have you gone and met with people who have been in a similar situation that you were in?
2: I did. I mean, it, so uh, once I kind of got somewhat over my depression period, I did think about a lot, like, okay, how am I going to? I mean, I, I really wanted to help uh, people. And especially I thought about Mongolia a lot. Okay. Uh, it's not like accidents had, doesn't happen. It's just people are hidden. I mean, out of sight. So, uh, and I, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are in uh, my situation, but doesn't have any. Re- I mean, don't have any resources or ways to get any sort of normal life. So, I really thought about uh, maybe uh, I don't know connecting with people in Mongolia and, uh, and see if there is anything I can do to help. And I knew, I mean, in America, uh, I mean, there are plenty of resources for people to utilize if you are in this uh, kind of situation. So I thought uh, people in countries like uh, Mongolia, I mean, they are in their dire needs of uh, uh, help. So I did connect with uh, some people uh, at my visit. I mean, three years after my injury, I went back to visit Mongolia. And then I connected with some people with spinal cord injuries, and I found out there are actually so many people in the wheelchairs who have a spinal cord injuries and things like that. So I, I do stay uh, in contact with them, and then once in a while I do some fundraiser here and there to help someone to get a wheelchair or the cushion and things like that. So, but I haven't done a whole lot. It, it's kind of still in uh, in the back of my mind to uh, maybe uh, create uh, some non-profit like international NGO or something to help people in Mongolia who have a spinal cord injuries.
0: You were just visiting, as we said at the beginning, the U.S., and then you mentioned that one of the, the people the Buddhist priest put you in touch with was an immigration lawyer. So, so how did you decide to immigrate to the U.S., and what was that process like?
2: So the the whole reason I decided to uh, stay uh, and live in America is uh, basically the uh, the accessibility. Uh, you know, the uh, Mongolia uh, country where it, everything is built just uh, thinking that there is nobody in a wheelchair. So uh, there's still to this day, ex- uh, the wheelchair uh, accessibility is very poor. You can't really uh, the uh, person like me in a wheelchair. They can't just be on their own. They can't uh, uh, go out about and then uh, just go to the store or go to movie theater or drive. Still, uh, that's still uh, the challenge. And so, uh, most people I found out is just they mostly stay in their home. They can't leave their house. So that was the whole reason that if I were to go back to Mongolia, I'm. I don't know. I, I just felt like that's like a end of life for me. I'm not going to be able to do anything. I can't help my family. I can't raise my child. I can't do anything. So I decided, I looked for ways to, okay, how am I going to actually stay in the United States? Because uh, uh, when, when I see that, how Tammy is leaving, if she was in Mongolia, she won't be leaving like that. That was only possible here in the United States.
0: So you mentioned you had a son. I can't imagine that choice, right? That's the, you've laid out there. So obviously it must have been very difficult to, to be separated from your son. So how, how long before you were able to see your son again?
2: I, uh, like I said, I went back uh, to Mongolia to visit three years after my accident. That was in 2003. And then after that, I went to see him again in 2006. And then he was finally able to uh, come and live with me in 2008. So that's eight years wow. uh, that I wasn't, I mean, I was away from my child. And mm-hmm. uh, when I left, he was only five, uh, turning six at that time. So it was very uh, critical moment uh, for him. I mean, he he'd never been separated from me before. So, uh, but he was uh, too young to understand the scope of the things that happened. also mm-hmm. uh, old enough to kind of get, uh, I mean, hear all the bad things. Like, oh, she is an accident. She's never going to be able to walk again. Mom is not coming home and all that stuff, of course, he gets it. And it was really hard on him too. So so it, it was really challenging for me. It's just, a, and then all I can think of was, okay, I need to, uh stay uh here I mean I need to figure out a way to stay here in the United States, and then I need to figure out to bring my son here. Mm-hmm. so that was my main goal and so that involves finding a job, getting a uh, legal status and which are not easy when yeah. <laughs> you are there only have a visitor visa and then changing your visitor visa into an immigrant status is just not that easy. There are not that many options uh, to just, yeah, become a, a green card holder or a permanent residence. There's so many hoops to jump. And so uh, at the time, only available option for me was to get a green card to uh, marriage to a U.S. citizen. And I was able to meet somebody uh, and I uh, got uh, married and got all the paperwork and stuff and so that i i obtained the green card but uh that marriage didn't last long unfortunately so uh a year and a half later uh, uh divorced. but i was able to retain my uh status and then but it took longer uh for me to bring my uh, son so that's why he came eight years later
1: I mean, did that, did that give you the motivation? I mean, we talked about how how depressed you were after the initial accident. Did, that's, did that give you the motivation? You know, I have to do this, 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 and this, and then eventually I can have my son with me here in the U.S. Is that kind of what served as your motivation for those eight years?
2: Exactly. So uh, once I kind of figure out there's a, a light at the yeah. end of the tunnel, once I start seeing that, yeah, I just went for it. I didn't really look back and uh, I just, all I could think of is, okay, how am I going to get it, get where I want to be and what I need to do. And then I wasn't really shy about asking for help. And uh, I mean, you know, I mean, desperate times uh, requires desperate measures. So, and uh, so I didn't even have actually time to really feel sad for me for that long, because once I I see the target, I need to yeah. get it. So uh, I just okay. I need to once I got the green card and I had to start working. So I got a job and uh, and then start earning money and then start sending money back home. So uh, my son uh, can I mean have uh, uh, clothes to wear or food to eat and things like that. So didn't really. I mean, of course, I struggled. Uh, mm-hmm. It's I mean, at least for a couple of years, I mean, the pain and things are still there and you're still dealing with the uh, results of the spinal cord injury physically. And uh, But then once you have a goal, you kind of put that aside and then just uh, go for it. And so I have actually worked full time since 2002 and never stopped working and uh, earning money so uh, I can give a life to my kid.
1: Maybe I don't know how to word this question correctly, but how long was it before life became, you know, maybe not normal, but predictable for you? I mean, you you went through this incredible trauma, immigrated to a new country, went through all these goals to eventually reunite your family together. Um, You went through all these legal hurdles. How long did it take for you to have a life that like, had something that resembled a normal rhythm? I mean, more than more than eight years, I imagine.
2: I would say once I actually had my uh, citizenship certificate in my hand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's when I felt like now I can, I mean, be more, uh, I guess, independent. Mm-hmm. I don't I have to be worried about like I have to leave this country or anything like that. So that was when I start feeling uh, somewhat uh, normal. I knew things gonna happen. It will take time, but things will happen. But in 2008, that's the same year that my son actually came to join me. And that's the same year I got my uh, citizenship. Uh, so, But then next ta- I mean, once you accomplish something and then you wanna like, oh, okay uh the, my, I have the, I, I probably should say that I have two ki- uh, mm-hmm. two kids, uh, a son and a daughter. So my daughter is actually my biological niece, my sister's uh, daughter. Mm-hmm. So uh, so the reason, I mean, I adopted her because uh, when I left Mongolia in, back in 2000, I uh, left my son in my mom's care. Because I was going to come back, and so it's uh, so that was uh, uh, the solution. But then my uh, sister had a child, and the, so my uh, niece also was in my uh, lived with my mom as well. So my my son and my niece, uh, now my daughter, they actually grew up together. They kind of like siblings. And then I talked to both my uh, sister and my mom, and uh, kind of okay how about we actually uh, I adopt her and then hopefully we'll bring her here so they actually uh, stay together and then continue to be the siblings (laughs) as they grow up so and it would be also kind of nice for me to have a uh, daughter too since I had only a son so um, so it worked out pretty well I mean I did the adoption process went pretty smoothly and then uh, her immigration process didn't take as long as my son's did because I was already a citizen. So it took uh, a lot shorter. And then uh, she uh, joined us uh, three years after my son got here. And then now uh, we are big, happy family.
1: <laughs> that's that's <laughs> it's so a big awesome family. to hear. Happy
2: family. Yeah. Yeah.
1: What are some of the things you and your family uh, enjoy doing, you know, outside of curling, what are your hobbies and, you know, what are the things you and your family enjoy doing together Do you, or anywhere in particular you enjoy traveling, that kind of thing?
2: Lately the curling has taken most of my uh, times uh, other than work. So if I'm not working, my I'm curling or training. So that's, uh, the, that's how it's uh, going these days. But before that, I mean, I did enjoy uh, uh, learning, uh, musical instruments or learning different languages and things like that. So, I spent some of my spare times you know, like uh, trying to learn some instruments. And I, like a few years before my um, uh, curling uh, started, I did try uh, learning uh, this Mongolian traditional uh, instrument called meringhor, uh, meaning uh, if you kind of uh, Google like a uh, horse head fiddle, Mongolian okay. horse head fiddle. So you probably will uh, see what it is. So uh, I try to learn that one and uh, I was able to actually play a few uh, songs and tunes on there. And then I would, uh, whenever I go to some Mongolian gatherings, I would entertain them with a couple of <laughs> tunes and things like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So how how were you first introduced to curling?
2: Now it's actually a little over five years ago. So I had had no idea what curling was before I uh, actually int- introduced the curling. And I had a friend who is a curler and he talked about curling, but I had no idea what curling was. And uh, one day he said, oh, you should, uh, I mean, come down and uh, it's a surprise. And he actually didn't say where uh, we were going. So just come with me and uh, to this place and I'm like, okay. So at least I'll get free food. So I went. <laughs> and and then, uh, so uh, I, I didn't know where we were going, but uh, we were actually driving to Blaine here in Minnesota, the curling club. So, okay. So I guess it's a curling club. So I had no idea. And then, uh, so there were all these uh, people in a wheelchair curling. And it turned out it was uh, the, the wheelchair national curling team at the time. Oh, wow. They were yeah. having their training camp in Blaine. And, he said he actually saw them like a couple days before that and then thought, oh, this is interesting. Iuna should <laughs> learn about this. And then he <laughs> invited me. So I think that's how it happened. And then uh, I I thought maybe we we're going to just, I don't know, watch them uh, practice and uh, uh, I don't know, eat and chat and whatever. But we didn't even get to go to the restaurant. So we met the people right away and shook their hand and started talking to them and then before i know it i mean they invited me to the ice and so okay you should try and okay and i'll just go in with the flow and then yeah, got on the ice and then before i know it i'm holding a a stick and pushing a stone and (laughs) so it was a uh, quite interesting experience and then i really enjoyed my experience uh, like pushing the stone and then seeing how it's gliding on this on the ice and then when they actually Uh, hit each other and then the the noise they make and because it was a kind of hot day outside so uh, so being in the curling club in the cool uh, environment also was kind of uh, nice uh, and I really enjoyed it and uh, the people were the the team members that I met uh, were so nice everybody was so inviting and uh, friendly and And then at the time, I also met uh, Rusty Scheiber, who is now our current coach. He actually told me, well, if uh, we actually need uh, female curlers, Mm -hmm. and uh, there are so few female curlers, and then wheelchair curling is a mixed gender sport. And uh, uh, so if you uh, really like it, and if you're interested, and if you keep at it, and there is a very good chance that you could be in the 2022 Paralympics, I'm like, Really? Is that, I mean, I like that this fast? So, so since it was, I mean, actually, the the actual coach is telling, so I'm like, huh. So, that kind of, I guess, uh, there was a seed of a dream mm-hmm. kind of uh, got put in my head, like, huh, Paralympics. So, anyway, and then uh, when I came back home, I started Googling and YouTubing about all this wheelchair curling. And and then, like, it was the weekend, so I watched nonstop all these curling (laughs) matches from Sochi games. And it was so interesting to see people that I just met. They were also, yeah, on the YouTube videos and things like that. So kind of fancy to see people that I just met. They are already professional athletes. And it was was kind of inspiring to see. And, you know, when uh, during the uh, curling uh, games they, uh, the commentators they would be talking a little bit about each player who they are what they do and then just listening to that was very interesting to me and uh, they were like oh so and so i mean that it works full time this and that and, and it's like wow these people seems just like a regular people so I, I kind of started like a daydreaming. Oh, wouldn't that be nice if I'm actually on in there in the uh, uh, Olympic ice, uh, just like these people. So that's kind of how I start like dreaming a little bit.
1: So now all of a sudden you've got another goal, right?
2: Yes, another goal. So there was, uh, it was kind of
0: So... For our listeners who are unfamiliar, what are some of the rule differences or gameplay differences between wheelchair curling and able bodied curling?
2: Wheelchair curling, uh, the difference is uh, the delivery method. I guess we use, uh, uh, we don't slide obviously, we're in a wheelchair. So we do uh, lock our chairs and then somebody is holding our chair and then we use a delivery stick uh, with the special head. Uh, like a device that kind of goes over the stone handle, and then we push from stationary position instead of sliding like able-bodied people. And another difference is we in the wheelchair curling, we don't have sweepers. Our stones are not swept, so it's you have to be pre um, precise in uh, in terms of your weight. So if you want to put in a button, you better make sure it's in the button. <laughs> Nobody's gonna drag it there. <laughs> so... <laughs>
0: Are there strategy differences then because of that? Is it is the style of play a little bit different? Do you think
2: strategy is not really that different, uh, especially when it's a, if it's a wheelchair game. I mean, it's pretty much the same strategy. Uh, I mean, all of us uh, are not sweeping, so uh, it's just uh, the same. Uh, we're all on the same page, and uh, we play exact same strategy and game rules like a able-bodied game. But sometimes uh, uh, when the wheelchair curler is in uh, the able bodied team, I mean, there are a lot of actually our uh, teammates or a lot of people who actually play in a regular league with uh, able bodied curlers. So in that case, I mean, people throw a stone, and then depending on you know, what, you accomplish, what you want to accomplish, I think uh, people sweep their stones. And so you just, get mixed in and then play a regular game. There's really not a whole lot of difference.
0: So we, we actually had the coach from the British uh, Paralympic team in 2014 on uh, Tommy's, Tony Zumac, And one of the things he talked about was the 18 inch delivery area. So is that is it like a restricted area you have to deliver from or?
2: Yes. Yeah. So 18 uh, inch delivery area. So you basically are expected to deliver your stone within that 18 uh, inch area. You can't just slide all the way to the side of the eyes and then throw stone. Yeah, you can't. So basically most people like deliver like uh, from the center line Mm. most of them, but then it's like a little bit off to uh, the both sides within that 18 inch, depending on which turn and things also depending on whether the person is left handed or right handed. Yeah. So, but I've seen some uh, people also, uh, To take advantage, they would actually move it quite a bit, I mean, closer to the 18 inch and to see the uh, stone better. Because if they actually move it to to the center, the stone is not visible at all. You can't get to it. But if you move it a few inches, you can kind of see like a quarter of it or something, which is an advantage, of course.
0: I think think that was his point. I think he he mentioned that his team started playing around with that to get different Different angles, right? So maybe that was he kind of flagged that as an advantage. Yeah,
2: you do have to be careful not to kind of go over that. Otherwise, yeah. it's kind of uh, yeah, be the rule uh, a violation of rules or something.
0: And the other thing he said. So I wonder if this is true too, for from your perspective. The other thing he mentioned was that uh, there's a lot of things that. That he because he started coaching able bodied curling, then did wheelchair, then went back to able bodied. And he said there's a lot of differences, like subtle differences at this point at the high performance end, right? So he mentioned that one of the biggest challenges was that for athletes to keep warm for an entire game. So like, you know, if you're sleeping yes. <laughs> sweeping, you obviously have something to keep you warm, but if you're, I know. you're sitting in a chair and no sweeping, so is that is that a challenge that you have? And then are there other things that perhaps able bodied players take it? Take for granted that are perhaps a bit different in terms of how you play the game.
2: I guess uh, that yeah, that uh, because we don't uh, stay as active on the ice as uh, able-bodied, because uh, as you when you see, they have a. Uh, t-shirts like a short sleeves and shorts <laughs> sometimes and sweeping and sweeping and then sweating and but no we we have like snow pants and uh really thick winter shoes and uh, yeah so many layers still cold because all we do is like in, when our turn comes throw your two stone and then you're just basically yeah, not moving a whole lot and then of course you if you're holding your chair but that doesn't require a whole lot of moving as well. So yeah, the keeping warm is a challenge. And uh, I don't, I can't really think of other things. I mean, other than, I mean, when all of us, I mean, in a wheelchair playing together, there's really not a whole lot of other uh, differences, but if we're mixed in with able-bodied team, then uh, you have to have somebody holding your chair because Mm -hmm. uh, you you do Mm -hmm. kind of uh, depend on somebody holding your chair. Otherwise, if your chair slides, you lose your shot. So you have to make sure somebody is actually holding steady your chair so you can make your shots. So that's probably able-bodied people; they don't have to worry about that kind of stuff because they are on their own sliding and throwing the stones.
1: So after you met the team USA at Four Seasons, did you start curling regularly right away?
2: Uh, not really. I believe it or not, I actually never joined a league.
1: Okay. So,
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, so what I did was uh, once I kind of uh, learned uh, what curling was, and then if there is a chance for me to be actually in the Paralympics, so I kind of set my eye for okay, I want to make the team uh, and right away. So, but then I have to figure out okay, what do I need to do to uh, actually learn to curl and then to maximize uh, practice opportunities and things like that. So I started. Uh, reaching out to curling clubs and asking them, okay, I'm interested in curling. What do I need to do? And uh, so uh, it happened that uh, the Courage Center, uh, the one that I also played mm-hmm. uh, basketball and learned to drive, they have a, a adaptive curling program. So I learned that they, uh, those adaptive curling group, they curl in four seasons every week. So I thought, okay, I'll join that group. So there were not that many people only five uh guys and uh, four guys and me so basically five of us uh, and it's not we just get together every uh week and throw some stones mm-hmm. and kind of play each other but not like a, a big strategies or anything it's just the five of us throwing stones taking turns and so that i kind of stayed with that group for uh, about a year and a half and then uh i uh, also wanted to practice more to kind of improve my skills. So I joined a, a, a Dakota Curling Club, which is not another yeah. club here in Minnesota, uh, to uh, get more ice time. So I just joined as a member, so I can use their ice. And that's how I just been practicing. And the, most of my practice or curling times were on weekends only, because those league times really didn't, work for my work schedule. And uh, so I just basically practiced on weekends. And the, the, the Kyle, the, the, my friend who actually introduced me, he was sort of like my personal coach. So he kind of told, okay, connected me with uh, people in the curling clubs. And then he would actually uh, also ask me to join for some bond spills or league games. So I can actually have some game experience. So I tagged along with him quite a bit. <laughs> and then he would uh, show me, and he helped me a lot with my uh, practice and training uh, leading up to the pre-trials, uh, team selection pre-trials. And then he was the person who was on the ice with me all the time and doing the skill drills. And so without him, I wouldn't even know what girl was. was. What's his name? Kyle Balmer? Balmer?
1: Yeah, we know we know a couple of people from Dakota pretty well. Uh Matt Helley and uh Ryan Claussen. We've played with them a lot. So yeah, we yeah. know. We know the Dakota club pretty well.
2: Yeah, Dakota. I'm now yeah, Facebook friends or we also curled quite a bit with uh, some of the Dakota curling uh, club people.
1: What at what point were you considered for a spot on the US team?
2: Oh, yeah. So that was a 2018. Okay. 2016 was the year that I uh, found out about curling. And then uh, the whole year, I just kind of uh, played with my uh, adopted curling group and then practiced here and there and also curled with occasionally in leagues to as a, subs, a sub uh, for some games and things like that. But uh, since I had uh, connected with the, the national team and teams coach at the beginning, I was in the... Uh, the mailing list for uh, the team selection uh, tryout the emails and things like that so that's how i found out about the uh, team selection tryout and then i uh, did uh, apply for the team selection tryout uh, with my skill sets so i was invited uh, for pre-trials and then was uh, ended up in the top four from the uh, pre-trials and then went to the final tryout and made the top eight Wow. In 2018,
1: yep. yeah. Yeah, this, this April, you went to your first international event initially as an alternate, uh, but then you wound up playing a big part on a team that won gold at the Wheelchair Bees. Can you just take us through your experience at, at that tournament and getting your first uh, first international curling experience?
2: Oh, my God. It was it was just an <laughs> incredible experience. Just being able to uh, travel with my team... Uh, was uh, a great honor for me since I really wasn't officially the top five I I made the top five only because somebody retired mm-hmm. so uh, we couldn't do our team selection tryouts last year which was supposed to happen last year we didn't do that but then this happened and an opportunity opened up for me to join the top five which travels uh, for the championships so Uh, I was just uh, so happy, whatever position I was in. And then, and oh, I get to go. And then so, uh, and I was, of course, hoping uh, as an alternate maybe would have at least one or two games. I mean, I get to throw at least a stone. So... But I was happy either way, and then of course I was prepared if uh, I were to uh, play more games. Yeah, I would do my best. And both uh, uh, Pam and I we play as a lead, so we have a pretty similar uh, in the skill-wise. We're pretty similar, and, uh, and he said, "Well, whoever has a hot hand, and we're gonna keep it." So, and uh, I set out for the first game, first two games actually, I believe, and then I went in to play the second game, a uh, third game and against uh czech republic and then he decided to keep me in the game and then i was i played uh, the rest of the games and uh it was just an incredible experience i mean i was so happy i mean even though it was uh not a typical championship with all the bubble and quarantine and all that Mm -hmm. stuff but i was still so happy (laughs) that i get to actually do that and uh uh just it yeah we recorded my like first time getting on the championship ice and it was just i was just taking in all everything that explained the whole thing just to kind of take it in and we won gold yeah take us yeah. to winning that gold medal <laughs> oh my god it was a it was a pretty intense game i don't know if any uh if any of you watched it but uh, well it's not you can't watch it because it wasn't televised or, or uh, recorded so anyway I was following on uh,
1: Twitter <laughs> following oh God, following we the the team uh, team USA posting scores on yes, Twitter. yes
2: we we were so behind after fifth end and then only three ends left and but the the most important game was was actually a game against Italy because mm-hmm. that was uh the deciding uh game for us to qualify for world championship uh, in Beijing or not so that was still very intense game. So we just, uh, uh, (laughs) you know, I mean, you feel like, I mean, once you actually know that you actually won the game and it felt like, I don't know, I felt like my muscles, I mean, my heart was like squeezed so tight. And then once it's done, like, oh my God, it just like, yeah, <laughs> relieved and it was uh and the, of course we all cried and I didn't actually know I was gonna be that emotional. Mm-hmm. So I'm not typically that emotional person, but I just didn't know how where the tears were coming from. So I was so happy and then everybody, yeah, including the coaches were so happy and we just did tears in our eyes and yeah, finally made it. That was the the defining moment and that was the just an incredible moment, but then the uh, gold was, we all were saying that was like a icing on the cake. So we weren't uh, really like trying to win the gold, but it's nice to win a gold. So yeah. yeah, it was just an incredible, incredible experience.
1: I and saw the video of you guys singing, I think it was Sweet Caroline or something like that. Yes, after that was Steve end. yeah,
2: <laughs> oh my God, that was so incredible.
1: Yeah. So you're part of the the eight-person team from which they're going to select five players to go to Worlds in October. What's your summer going to be like in terms of training and preparing for that tournament?
2: We're going to be still, I mean, uh, be busy training on ice, off ice, of course. And unfortunately, yeah, not everybody has ice uh, during uh, this time of the year. And they have to travel quite a bit uh, to get to the ice. And uh, luckily for me, But I I live in Minnesota, so there's at least two curling clubs are open year-round. So I I get to actually get much more ice time. As a team, we uh, get together on Zoom once a week, talk about uh, strategy and team issues and all that stuff, and uh, just stay in touch with each other. Uh, We have um, training camps uh, scheduled uh, once a month, and... So we will all get together and then practice.
0: Has USA already qualified for the, the Paralympics or you have to you have to finish in a certain location? the
2: Paralympics. So it's still, the work is not done yet. So yeah. we obviously have a lot more work to do and uh, get ourselves to the Paralympics.
0: And so what would it mean for you to be part of the, uh, the team that goes to the Paralympics if you guys qualify in October?
2: Oh my god! That would be, of course, like everybody probably says that it's like a dream come true. It is true. I mean, I know. I mean, it's not like I grew up dreaming about a Paralympian, but uh, it is. Uh, but it's still a dream that uh, I just, uh, uh, I mean, uh, happened to uh, stumble on and then uh, work towards. And uh, I mean, the last uh, three, four years, I mean, I dedicated so much of my uh, life and time and effort to get where I am. And then just uh, seeing the uh, fruits of that effort is just uh, basically a dream come true.
0: What advice would you have for curling rinks that might be thinking of starting a wheelchair program? Is there anything you've noticed at the different rinks that makes it, first of all, easier to access? And then secondly, what's kind of makes it more attractive for wheelchair athletes to,
2: to come and participate? anybody who uh, would like to expand their program to uh, include uh, uh, people in a wheelchair, yeah, they, of course, first and foremost, the access, like building access and the access uh, to the ice, and also make sure you have accessible bathroom. Very important. (laughs) So, and uh, uh, so it's, it's really not that hard to make your uh, current uh, facility accessible. I mean, there's a I mean, a few modifications here and there. If the um, ices uh, go down, I mean, taking some steps, then you just have to build a ramp that's sturdy enough and safe enough uh, ramp that uh, gives access to the ice. If uh, uh, there's no steps, all you can do is just uh, buy a portable ramp that's how, how uh, actually Chaska made it accessible. Mm. Yeah, because Chaska building itself is accessible. There is no steps. But then to get down to the ice, I mean, you know, there's uh, one curb you kind of go down. So all they had to do was buy a ramp uh, big enough and sturdy enough. Uh, and then uh, whenever we're not there or nobody's uh, in a wheelchair, they can just put that away and then bring it back. So that's another option, easy option to make it accessible. And also maybe I know you know what the, the curling clubs have their pictures on their walls of their uh, club uh, league uh, chaplains and things like that, maybe include a picture or two that represents uh, people in a wheelchair curling. So whoever visits their club, they can kind of see themselves. Oh. I can actually curl here too. So I think it might be nice to kind of create that kind of uh, inviting environment for somebody uh, uh, who might actually uh, come and visit you. And then if they see somebody in a wheelchair, so they might think, oh, this is also for me too. reach out to the local uh, community uh, in the wheelchairs and do learn to curl classes and uh, also. Uh, Maybe they can, uh, if uh, the curling clubs are interested, they can maybe reach out to one of the national team members to do like a learn to class session and then we can kind of uh, also share our experiences and then in terms of the equipment, what they need, what works, what doesn't and like a push delivery techniques and things like that, what works depending on person's disability and balance and maybe have uh, uh, like a few delivery sticks Mm -hmm. uh, for wheelchair users in your club readily available.
1: Yeah, that was something I was impressed by with... USA curling was when I did my level 1 instructor they did teach us this is how you teach a stick delivery and they made sure that you know we we learned alternate deliveries that we could teach if someone could not do a traditional slide
2: Yeah and the uh, stick stick delivery like walking and delivering by stick and uh, delivering from chair is a slightly different maybe yeah. I mean they can be the same but uh, we do uh, most of the wheelchair um, curlers, in especially in competitive uh, level, they have pretty specific mm-hmm. uh, uh, delivery heads and sticks, and they all custom made and oh, wow. carbon fiber and whatnot. Yeah, and uh, there's uh, only few uh, uh, like licensed uh, delivery heads uh, that uh, we use, and then which doesn't require uh, twisting your arm to. Deliver a turn so mm. the delivery uh, heads we have. I mean, you just uh, uh, put your uh, stone in uh, whatever position, mm-hmm. uh, depending on what turn, and then you don't have to like twist your uh, wrist to oh, really uh, apply yeah. the turn, so you just push. So that makes it much easier. And then they uh, kind of get into more details like those things also adjustable uh there's some screws that, that you adjust uh to adjust the rotation of the stones if you want to get more rotations hmm. uh, oh, wow. if you want to get <laughs> less rotations on the stone so there's some science to it too it's not just uh, uh, yeah
0: are are there this almost sounds like Broomgate gate where like <laughs> someone's gonna come along and develop like uh a very effective, maybe too effective uh, stick that that might kind of give a team an advantage, and that might like lead to fights the same way with the the brush heads a few years ago.
2: In the in the wheelchair curling community, of course, there are some people who are already on on this, and then they are trying to come up with the the best and whatever uh, uh, delivery heads, and uh, that would be make things uh, easier or more controllable and things like that. So uh, yes, it it is in the works and there are several different uh, uh, options for delivery heads.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. So I want to turn back to Mongolia because Mongolia has been a member of the WCF since 2012, but they've never had a team compete internationally. So do you have any contacts with the Mongolian Curling Federation or know who's in charge of (laughs) Mongolian curling?
2: I'm not aware that Mongolia was actually a member of WCF. I have no idea. I've never seen anybody or never met or talked to anybody who knew what curling was. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> and I don't think, uh, maybe they probably, I don't know, uh, felt like they need to join uh, the cl- uh, club at some point And th- somebody wanted to maybe develop and never came to fruition, maybe. So, uh because uh, since my, uh, um, since our uh, uh, world peace uh, success, I mean, I was also being contacted by uh, some Mongolian news outlets mm-hmm. and sports shows and whatnot. And they didn't know anything about curling. And <laughs> <laughs> so they asked me what it is. And so I don't think uh, they actually had any curling program or any curling facility at all. Is that, to my knowledge? So maybe there's some hidden somewhere I, which I am not aware.
0: We actually occasionally get like one listen for an episode from Mongolia, which I've always been <laughs> kind of puzzled by. Like maybe there's one die-hard curling fan somewhere in Mongolia who listens to our podcast maybe. and set, up, set yeah. up the federation or something. So have you have you ever thought when you, uh, when you go back to Mongolia of maybe trying to help get people interested in the sport or?
2: Definitely. Yeah, because now a lot more people actually know what curling is, at least wheelchair curling is because of me. So uh, I think it's a good uh, opportunity if anybody's interested, uh, kind of uh, uh, create some awareness of the sport and not just wheelchair curling, of course, able body curling. And uh, because we live near Russia, because uh, russia has a very huge curling mm. program especially wheelchair their wheelchair curling program seems very big so they have actually several so many teams uh, that uh, they i mean compete with each other and so anyway i think we probably would be able to kind of uh develop something yeah i mean i would really yeah would be interested in uh bringing curling to uh, Mongolia if anybody wanted to work with me.
1: Oh, Yuna, thank you so much for being so open with us and being so um, free with your time. We really appreciate it. Uh, just a couple of things real quick. Just do you have any any advice for anyone who might find themselves in the situation you did where, you know, they're, they're in a tra- traumatic accident and they're depressed over what their future looks like? Do you have any advice for them if they happen to be listening?
2: Just never lose faith and uh, take one day at a time. And uh, if uh, if you see the light in the tunnel, don't give up. And uh, bad things don't last forever. So is good things uh, don't last forever. So it will pass through and then things will be uh, somewhat manageable in your life. So just uh, be positive, don't give up, and keep pushing.
1: And then how can people follow you or the team as you're preparing for Worlds and attempting to qualify for the Paralympics? Are you on social media, or should you just put? are you just going to push everybody to follow USA Curling to, to, to follow you guys' progress?
2: We do have a Facebook page, uh, USA Wheelchair Curling, uh, and we have quite a bit of people who follow us on there. We haven't been really putting a whole, whole lot of stuff uh, lately because I mean, since the world be we didn't have a whole lot of ice available and not really uh, uh, like getting together or doing a whole lot of things other than just our uh, personal trainings and so uh, that's where you the people can follow us. So uh, I'm actually the one who uh, is in charge of that page. So <laughs> whenever something interesting, newsworthy happens, yeah, I do tend to share them. And then most I, the the USA curling does a pretty good job as well uh, to uh, uh, share our uh, stories or activities uh, and things like that related to wheelchair curling. So I do share a lot of USA curling uh, stuff through that page as well.
1: All right. Oyuna, thank you so much and good luck the rest of the summer and good luck in Beijing.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much. It was my uh, pleasure talking to you both.
1: No, it was was our honor to have you on. Trust me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. If you enjoyed this show, we ask you to please leave a review or tell a friend about us. Your referrals to friends and family are the greatest compliment we can receive and is what allows our show to grow and share our love of this great game. You can find all of our past shows and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. If you have a question or comment, you can reach us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to us, and we will talk to you again real soon.